Hi, everybody. George here with a quick content warning. We're talking about an exploitation movie today, so as comes with a lot of the territory, there is some talk about sexual assault. Um, There's also some talk about animal cruelty, since a chicken was killed for this movie, although it was eaten. And it's all very brief in the episode, but, you know, use your discretion. Okay, on with the show. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a real treat to have on, one of my favorite writers, not only in the horror space, but just in general, covering primarily grindhouse and exploitation films at various outlets, including MidnightMovieMonster.com. Gigi Graham is here. How's it going? I am excellent. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. I'm super excited to talk with you about the movie that you picked today, because not only is this a really interesting movie in general, but this is a chance for us to dive into something that doesn't get a lot of coverage, not only in this podcast, but just I feel like in horror coverage in general, exploitation movies and stuff sort of get passed over a little bit. It's Absolutely. Sort of, it's a cult uh, within a cult. It's not exactly. you know, something that get pops up on listicles on Pop Sugar and Screen Rant and wherever <laughs> else the hot take you know goes to die. Right. Before we get into exactly what an exploitation movie is, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into horror? How I got into horror, I was raised free range like an organic chicken. I didn't have a whole lot of rules <laughs> in my house. And I always had trouble sleeping. So even when I was a super, you know, super small, little tiny tater tot, I would always be up incredibly late. And this was a time when there was still local affiliates. Um, shout out WPIX 11, New York City. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we got that. Where, where I grew up, we had the New York stations. Like... You know, they do like something with Gary Cooper or Rita Hayworth or, you know, some sort of classic golden age. And then, of course, at midnight, you'd have the midnight movie. And that would be usually it would be like a silly, like rubber monster creature feature or, you know, something like Venom with Klaus Kinski, which wasn't a giant monster creature feature. (laughs) And I was disappointed. Um, (laughs) But that definitely kind of led to a love of the spooky and the scary. And then as far as exploitation specifically because I'm not just here to talk about horror, but also kind of Grindhouse era horror. Once again, when I was a very small tater tot, that was right at the end of the Grindhouse era where they were tearing these buildings down. They put these silly corporate haiku on the marquees and then they ripped it all down and they replaced it with Disney. (laughs) So excuse us, give everyone, I'll give you a moment to just find something shiny in which to throw up. And, (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, I had seen how Grindhouse died And as an adult, I started going back and kind of researching how it lived and what these films were and how those theaters worked, because it was something that was taken away before I got to really experience it. So I figured the least I could do was kind of memorialize it slightly. That's awesome. I assume that since it is sort of what you write about primarily, that exploitation movies are your favorite subgenre, or is it just the niche that you found yourself in? Well, here's the thing, like in the context of exploitation film, Exploitation film just means that you're using salacious, you know, timely, topical, the outrage cycle has been a thing for a lot longer than, you know, the internet to sell a movie. So while there are no longer grindhouses that are playing, you know, first run B movies 24 hours a day, there's certainly still exploitation film. It covers a lot of subgenres. It just happens to include a lot of horror. And yes, the exploitation golden age of grindhouse horror is probably my favorite subgenre of horror. Do you like some of the more recent attempts at it, or are you pretty strictly an old school? Oh no, no! Some of the recent attempts are great. I 
absolutely the devil's rejects was a great neo grindhouse exploitation film hobo with a shotgun was a lot of fun um revenge which is on shutter right now is an amazing feminist update to rape revenge movies there's definitely some really interesting stuff in neo grindhouse i'm not so much a fan of the modern direct to video because that tends to be a little bit more cynical and kind of purposefully bad like haha look at how silly this audience is and that strikes me as a little dull sure yeah, I'm pretty much on the same exact page as you, and I'm sure that none of the following will be news to you, and in fact, I'm sure that you could school me on it, but for the audience at home, let's talk a little bit about the origins of Grindhouse and exploitation films. Exploitation films arose because of the strict censorship laws in the 30s and 40s, so to get around them, movies about sex, drugs, and violence sort of masqueraded as these educational cautionary tales. There are a host of these, but I think uh, the most famous is probably Reefer Madness, which led to the Showtime movie musical down the road, which I love that movie. But well, I mean, as far as 30s and 40s, you know, the very early days of exploitation, there was a lot of, yeah, it was masquerading as education. There was also something called a hygiene film, which would have um, the most famous example of that would be Kroger Babs' Mom and Dad, which showed the actual birth of a baby. There was stuff on venereal disease. There was stuff on, you know, like marriage and how to keep a marriage happy. Gee, I wonder what that means. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, in the early days of exploitation, it was definitely lensed as more of an educational thing. Yeah, but as the genre kind of grew, it took more and more influence from the pulp novels and stuff and, and exploitative materials of the time. In addition to pulp novels, as burlesque started to fall back as a popular entertainment and the golden age of Hollywood and the movie palaces, which were these grand thousand seat theaters with scaled admissions, depending on whether you were in the good seats or the bad ones. From those old burlesque theaters, a lot of them, or buildings close to them, became grindhouses. 24 hours, lots of indie films needed, lots of schlock on offer. Yeah, that was that was exactly it. And it, so they sort of put this facade of education on the back burner and they focused on the elements that people had been watching for front and center. And as you sort of alluded to, it splintered into several more styles, uh, including, among many others, blaxploitation, exploitation, ozploitation, sexploitation, even genres like spaghetti western, monster movies, and giallo are technically part of the exploitation movement. That and all curious. of those genres have subgenres. It gets real complicated. Um, yeah. Take any common noun, a plant, you know, and append exploitation to it, <laughs> and it exists. I promise you, it does. Um, I'm curious if you have a fl- uh, a favorite splinter genre within uh, exploitation movies. No, I tend to choose. There's always going to be like one or two films I champion in each like sub sub genre. Mm-hmm. I tend to pick a specific movie more than like this is my favorite sub genre. Like if we're talking non exploitation, like I can talk you off about Killer Nun. If you're talking black exploitation, like let's talk about Ganja and Hess. I tend to right gravitate towards these are these very specific films within the subgenre that maybe even the other genre scholars aren't really name checking that right. I fall in love with and you know try to expose to as many people as possible. This film is actually one of those. Perfect. And I mean, in many cases, these genres, these splinter genres did help to uh, develop genres and franchises that we know and love today. I mean, just to name a few, uh, without Mario Bava's Bay of Blood, there would definitely be no Friday the 13th. Without Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Feast, there would be no Evil Dead or Dead Alive. And Exploitation Cinema's biggest fan, Quentin Tarantino, would probably be a shoe salesman somewhere. Yeah. Also, let's not forget (laughs) Night of the Living Dead. Which originally played right. basically as a B feature, as an independent, you know, low budget B feature. And I mean, 
there's so many branches on the horror family tree that go directly back to Romero-style zombies. There are plenty of movies that are considered exploitation that have, beca- uh, that have become icons in their own right, including Night of the Living Dead. And, of course, it's all extremely subjective because I- I've seen Carnival of Souls and Eyes Without a Face, both excellent movies debated as exploitation movies that just became well-regarded. You know, there's a certain reluctance for people to admit that they like these sort of things when they have built themselves this facade of... I don't even know what, but this, this... Since you mentioned it, now we're going to go into this small digression. I promise I'll make it quick. But (laughs) (laughs) so much of the discourse around B-cinema and exploitation cinema, it's either sort of that mystery science theater 3000, like, you know, scream at the screen, have a giggle with your friends. You know, it's a bad movie, let's laugh at it. Or there's this one bad movie that transcended its essential cheapness. And both Mm -hmm. of those takes are kind of reductive because at the end of the day, exploitation filmmaking dealt with a lot of issues and topics and styles and forms that didn't show up in mainstream cinema for years, sometimes decades. Sure, they were handled with all the subtlety of a building demolition, but they were there. And it's kind of interesting to track the sea changes of social movements and different norms by how they get demonized in like these cheap exploitation horror films. There's definitely some other things to enjoy aside from laugh at it or, you know, canonize these six films and bin the rest. Definitely. I think it's really important to kind of look at it as kind of is the core of what horror is when people think about it as a counterculture and talking about it as like, what are the social norms and what goes against that? Apparently nothing scares us more than a changing world. Exactly. And and these movies really sort of put that in front of you. And you mentioned B-movies, and these movies really are at the forefront of the B-movie identity, which, uh, for people who don't know, was the second showing in a drive-in double feature, usually started around midnight. These were the cheaper and less publicized movies aimed at teens and young adults who were unsurprisingly titillated by the content. And but- also, they usually had long, slow sequences, so everybody had a chance to make out. <laughs> Exactly. And in the in the 60s and 70s, as the drive-in market started to fade, these grindhouse theaters that you mentioned became popular sort of as the antithesis of an art house theater. Well, I mean, it's also kind of, you know, it wasn't just as the drive-in started to fade, the grindhouses rose. It was also an urban versus rural thing. Right. Um, if you right. lived in a suburban or rural area, <laughs> you're going to see your crap at a, at a drive-in. If you lived in New York City or Philadelphia, you're going to see your schlock at a grindhouse. The name uh, supposedly comes from the way that studios would, quote unquote, just grind these movies out, plugging in some sex and violence with a thin plot. But I think that that is also relatively reductive in terms of what these movies have to offer. I mean, well, let's let's not get too deep. I mean, there generally is a good amount of sex, violence and or both. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's, you know, let's not try and polish the turd too hard. Yes, there's more to them, but... In any given exploitation film, there's going to be a healthy dollop of nudity, sex, violence. It comes with the territory. If you're expecting something that conforms to modern moral standards or social mores, oh, buckle up, Rupert, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I don't want to undercredit them, but I don't want to overcredit them as well, especially for listeners who might not be familiar, like boobs, blood, beasts, bad taste, like that came from somewhere. There's a reason. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I, I think I think you're exactly right in that. It you don't want to oversell it, but 
I also, I, I do feel like it's important to sort of point out that there is more to it just in terms of, like you said, there are the two sort of takes of like, uh, either it's this cynical Sharknado style asylum movie. God, I or, hate that movie. <laughs> right, exactly. It, Full it, stop, it, yes. As someone who likes exploitation movies as well i mean i this was my first time seeing the movie that you picked but i have seen many exploitation movies over the years and have a real fondness for them and so these movies that are like we're making a movie that is cheap and quote-unquote bad on purpose i mean it's very cynical and it kind of assumes that the audience is so stupid they'll pay for it anyway we don't have to try exactly and and so that's uh, uh upsetting to me and i think that a lot of especially in the quote-unquote golden age of exploitation when grindhouses were big, that even though they were cheap and they did, you know, like you said, have sex. Oh, they were hideous, ugly, zombie babies, but somebody loved them because a lot of these were tiny regional productions. You know, they borrowed money from their grandma, they got all their friends together, (laughs) and they somehow managed to make this piece of shit. And that's commendable. Absolutely. And you got to admire the passion and the heart that goes into them at the very least. So now that we've got a little context, we're up to 1970, and we can start talking about this week's best horror movie ever made, David E. Durston's I Drink, I Drink Your, Your Blood. Blood. Like, I, like I mentioned, this was my first time watching it, but you have been raving about this for literally as long as I've known you. So uh, that was really Anyone who knows me is chance. like, oh, God, this bitch is talking about this movie again. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've shown this movie to so many people. I This is probably, and I've spent thousands of hours, a disgusting amount of time and money watching exploitation films. And this is hands down the one that I've watched the most. It is my favorite. When I die, carve my tombstone with Satan was an acid head, drink from his cup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is great. And I think it's interesting that it's not a first-time attempt for David Durston. He had already made a few sexploitation films by the time this came out, and he had even done some more mainstream stuff. He directed the ABC show Tales of Tomorrow by this point, so it's kind of interesting. Some stage acting in his youth. He had done some writing for TV. He had done some production work. He had had like a bit of a journeyman career. And so it's interesting that he's the one who was approached by producer Jerry Gross, who was described by Durston as wanting to make, quote unquote, the most graphic horror movie ever produced. But he didn't want any vampires, man-made monsters, werewolves, mad doctors, or little people. Yeah, he made it very specific that there was not to be anything supernatural in the movie, which makes the later retitling of the movie to I Drink Your Blood, that much more entertaining because no one drinks any blood, no one even drinks a Bloody Mary. In the words of the director, David Durston, the movie may as well be called I Shit in Your Saddlebag because there's no shit and there's no saddlebag and there's no drinking and there's no blood. Um, But they were very specific that they didn't want a supernatural horror of any kind. They wanted something that could compete with Night of the Living Dead. So Durston checked in and he went to work and... Eventually, he became inspired by this article he read about a village in Iran, and according to him, it described an incident where a pack of rabid wolves attacked a schoolhouse, and he reached out to a doctor that was a rabies expert that had visited this village and saw some 8mm footage that the doctor had taken that kind of consisted of the infected kids locked in cages and foaming at the mouth, and Durston said, it made the hair on the back of my head elevate. I had never seen anything so horrible, yet so real in my life, and I think... That's exactly what makes this movie so interesting to me is that it does create this really horrible, horrific environment, but it's it's so grounded. I mean, um, it does create a horrible environment. The idea 
of a slow death from rabies is a pretty horrible concept. But yeah. then the Manson murders happen and they shoehorn in like <laughs> you see a lot of this in exploitation from like the early 70s of kind of post Manson like hippie hangover everything is wrong and that's where things start to get silly because then it doesn't become a movie about a small town infected with an animal disease that's a pandemic and is killing them it becomes about rabid hippie zombies <laughs> <laughs> yes not not to uh put too fine a point on it but that's exactly what happens and for people it was shocking to me when once upon a time in hollywood came out how many people it seemed like weren't familiar with charles manson and sort of his whole shtick but it was a highly public trial it was everywhere at the time people knew about charles manson yes and they rushed this movie out because they were like you know while the trial is still going on let's get it out <laughs> as early as we can to keep right. it as topical as possible because yes the van they're driving looks like a satanic mystery machine but it's clear that this is a manson family stand-in our main group of you know antagonist characters Definitely. Uh, and to that end, they cast a notably diverse group as the followers of the Manson stand-in Horace Bones, uh, played by Bashkar Roy Chowdhury. Who was the most um, famous person in the cast at the time, because he yeah. actually was a famous Indian folk dancer, classical dancer, incredibly talented in that regard, had done a lot of talk shows and like nighttime TV appearances. Like people would have known who he was. I wish we got a little dancing in this movie. <laughs> this is actually one of the few movies they worked on together where he doesn't dance. And that's a shame, but you do get to yeah. see some of his physical grace in the fight choreography toward Definitely. the end of the film. Like you said, he's the most famous person at the time, but the movie does also feature Arlene Farber as Sylvia. and Who the screen later debut in the French of, Connection. Exactly. And the screen debut of Lynn Lowry as Carrie the Mute Cultist. The thing is, she was not supposed to be in the film. They had already cast the film. They had already written the script. They were about to pack up and go on location to Sharon Springs, New York, which is a tiny town in upstate New York. And she walked in and he loved her face so much. <laughs> That her face was so lovely, he wrote her apart with no lines. There you go. I mean, that's how you break into the biz, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Arlene Farber, who we met, as we mentioned, went on to uh, star in The French Connection. She actually was the wife of producer Jerry Gross and had starred in several of Gross's previous films. And Lowry, although she had no lines in this, would eventually go on to star in Romero's The Crazies and David Cronenberg's Shivers. So uh, there you go. She has plenty of exploitation cred, if you ask me. And George Patterson as Rollo is also a standout performance for me. I thought he was really fantastic. He was actually a model and a ballet dancer. I get that. It, honestly, that uh, ballet, I think, really kind of comes through the same way you mentioned the grace of, of Bascar. I think that um, George Patterson really sort of has this interesting body fluidity to him uh, as well. He tends to get a lot more of the scenes that kind of require a certain fluidity of motion. Um, we'll probably get into this a little later. There's one particular um, effect that hinges on his performance, on him nailing an exact spot to not injure one of his castmates. He definitely gets more of the physical acting to do. As you mentioned, um, they took this group of actors up to Sharon Springs, where they filmed for eight weeks. Sharon Springs was once a famous spa village, but had been largely abandoned, uh, especially the hotels. So they were allowed to use them as shooting locations. They and paid $300 probably, for the privilege, and they're like, we'll help you tear it down because it's coming down anyway. 
Exactly. I mean, hey, you can't beat that. And it probably didn't hurt that Durston became buddy-buddy with the local sheriff, uh, even casting the sheriff as the sheriff However, in the movie. this didn't help them as much as you would think because the you know local housewives actually called tried to stop the film because they saw Durston trying to motivate one of the actresses in one of the more emotional scenes. And they're like, he's abusing his cast. They really are <laughs> satanic hippies and freaked out. <laughs> that's a, that's 1970 for you. Yeah. Very 1970 <laughs> footnote. Uh, the movie was initially intended to be named either phobia or hydrophobia after one of the symptoms of rabies. But as you as you mentioned, it was in fact renamed to uh, I Drank Your Blood because uh, Gross decided it, it needed to be marketed as a double feature. And so he bought Del Tenney's 1964 movie Zombies. Which is awful. It's a very slow film about Haitian it, zombies. It they look bad. like cooked oatmeal. They're, it's not a good film. It needed the punchier title, trust me. Yeah, and I mean, so he renamed that to I Eat Your Skin, and he renamed this to I Drink Your Blood, and just seeing the, like, poster for the double feature, I was like, you know, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, and, and, like, you know, they have the the bloody, you know, gory, and anyone who knows my online presence knows that the poster is basically my avatar for everything, and then it has in gigantic print, probably came also on the included barf bags, because that was a very Jerry Gross (laughs) kind of promotion to do, Two great blood horrors to rip out your guts, even though nobody really gets their guts ripped out-ish. <laughs> they get spilled, yeah. but not cold out. It's minor quibble. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the same kind. Of, it's the kind of thing where it's like, uh, it's close enough, it's I adjacent. guess. <laughs> they're, I would say they're closer to getting their guts ripped out than they are to anyone drinking blood. So, <laughs> And he did do this without consulting Durston, which isn't uh, particularly a cool thing to do, but... Well, I mean, uh, to be fair, Durston also cast Lynn Lowry and how- hired another person without even changing the script or telling <laughs> him. So I guess it was like a tip for tap thing. True, true. And uh, yeah, like like you said, they took this like crazy monster that they put on the poster, but that was originally supposed to be poster art for the 1967 Roddy McDowell movie, It. And so they literally were like, all right, just take as much cool stuff as we can. And whatever we don't have to together. pay for, whatever we have lying around. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever exactly. doesn't cost us any money. If that's like a silver dollar and a shoestring, cool. Let's do it. We'll call this slingshot. <laughs> uh, it really, it all comes together to create, I think, a very enticing atmosphere. I, I think that the poster is great. It's a really fun title. The fact that it works together with the other one. Trailer is amazing. It is one of the greatest Grindhouse trailers, bar none. It's free on YouTube. It's two minutes of absolute bollyhoo and bullshit. It's beautiful before i mean honestly people should just watch the movie they should they should find it and watch it but if at the very least definitely check out the trailer and they when they finally got this movie filmed they sent it to the mpaa for rating and it became the first movie to receive an x rating strictly for violence not for its nudity aspects yeah i mean there is nudity in the film but by grindhouse standards it's not a ton there is some questionable content which we'll probably also get to very shortly but Again, by Grindhouse standards, not a ton. This really earned its X rating, sheer bloodletting purposes. Just gore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this X rating caused theaters to threaten to pull the film. And so the distribution company basically said, fuck it. (laughs) And they were like, okay, theaters, do what you want. Cut it however you like. 
That is so crazy to me. A that similar is. thing happened with Last House on the Left. It actually wasn't super uncommon for like the rougher sorts of exploitation film where projectionists right. would just chop out whatever they felt was offensive for their communities. He was literally just like, as long as you'll try and show it. Yeah, I mean, you can't <laughs> you lose the money and not book it. it. So hack it to pieces. You're all surgeons. Congratulations. You're a doctor. Your mom is proud of you. Do as you please. <laughs> <laughs> and despite this, and perhaps because of the the aggressive cutting, it got and continues to get a mixed reception thanks to both praise and criticism of the violence. When Bhaskar took a girlfriend to see I Drink Your Blood, she reportedly ran from the theater halfway and puked and then refused to come back in for the rest, which I think is a fun anecdote. I also um, think it's kind of a timely one. I feel like to anyone out there watching this today, because it is that older style of like red paint kind of blood right i feel like there's a certain subset of the audience that's still going to be like this is absolutely vile but then there's going to be some listeners who are like whatever this looks like a teddy bear picnic like this is so cheesy and both of those takes are valid yeah i I definitely agree and durston himself i think did a really good job of summarizing the reaction where he said i think the reason audiences reacted to it so dramatically was because it was a violent story that probably could have happened the violence wasn't far-fetched or unmotivated the more audiences can identify with a situation that might happen to them or could happen to them, the bigger the scare. And I think that that really hits the nail on the head. The fact that it was so grounded and the fact that people were – or the rabies aspect at least was yeah, so grounded. Yeah, the rabies aspect could happen. <laughs> um, having a band of dirty, long-haired hippies in your town was happening at that time. Like it was the tail end of that era, but still. And it's definitely a little bit like the squares versus the youth culture you know, in addition to the rabies. That is still very true today in terms of the way that people react to movies. And I I think Hereditary is a really good example. I was just talking to someone recently about how the demon stuff is not the most upsetting parts of that. It's more like... The telephone uh, call? yeah, well, even before that, but just like when when she's like asphyxiating and like scratching at her throat. Oh yeah, and the allergic like, reaction. So the more that you can identify with something, the more you can put yourself in the shoes of the character, and uh, the scarier it is. And so I think that it is very reasonable that people would have been scared by this movie. At the very least, second. Right. Yes. At the very least, second. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. This is the ghost of George, and it's getting to be the spooky season. However you're getting your scares in, they go better with tuck-ins, the all-in-one inside-out s'more. Each tuck-in has crunchy handmade graham cracker covered in decadent chocolate, all tucked inside a fluffy marshmallow. And the best part is, because they're self-contained, you can roast them anywhere around a fire pit while you're telling ghost stories, or even just over the stove for a sweet movie treat alternative to popcorn. Uh, They also come in multiple flavors, and while you can't go wrong with classic, I gotta say that I'm a cookies and cream guy personally. Plus, it's a local company owned by two previous guests on this very show. And since they like the show so much, they're giving listeners a 15% discount if you use the offer code BEST15 at tuckins.com. That's BEST15 at T-U-C-K-I-N-S.com for 15% off. So don't wind up with a bag of stale mallows in the back of your pantry. Check out Tuckins today. And now, back to the show. It starts off, I think, with just this really, really awesome scene with... Horace Bones, cult leader of a bunch of hippies conducting this satanic ritual in the woods. Damn these long hairs. Yeah, I mean, it shows you what kind of movie it is in the first 30 seconds. Everyone is naked. They're talking about dropping acid. There's an absolutely amazing speech about how 
he's Horace Bones, you know, firstborn son of Satan, and Satan lives oh, yeah, in the I'm house Capricorn. of Capricorn. <laughs> and supposedly, now I air quote both the fact that someone told David Durston this, and that David Durston at one point, you know, believed it. Supposedly he had a girlfriend who used to be in like a satanic cult, and she told him that's how that worked. I'm not really sure that's the case, but we'll roll with it. I have literally the same exact thing also in quotes because I didn't believe it. <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm air quoting, you know, like, yeah, okay, so you had a girlfriend who was in a satanic group. Like, the whole thing is just begging for some air quotes and a raised eyebrow. But nonetheless, sure. we'll roll with it. Also, it shows you what kind of movie it is in that the only animal that actually dies in this film is that chicken in the first scene. The crew later ate it, but there actually is... That chicken unfortunately sacrificed itself for this piece of drive-in crap. Yeah, I am glad that they ate it, though. That does make me feel a little bit better. Like, <laughs> apparently people got very upset when the film was released, thinking that there was animal cruelty in it in large amounts, some of the other scenes involving some other animals, etc. And that is the only thing, um, according to both the director and the cast, which is why I believe it, because if it had just been David Durston, eh, he's already showing he's, you know, a bit of a showman and... A bit of a questionable narrator. Right. But I, I think that the scene really, it's, it rules. And it's a great way to introduce the character of Horace where he's like cloaked in darkness and also an actual cloak. And <laughs> he gives this speech with just this wild-eyed intensity. And I think that you really sort of get a sense of who he is and why these people are following him just because he is he's extremely charismatic. And I think it's an interesting characterization because it's not like a traditional tough guy. He's got mm. the long hair. He's so elegant in his movements. He's very soft-spoken. He doesn't really shout at any of the other cultists. He isn't really, you know, trying to put on that whole show of traditional masculinity. He's almost fake in places. Yeah. And they're obviously terrified of him because they know how quickly he can turn. Yeah, and we also get to sort of put ourselves in the shoes of watching this because Sylvia, a townie who was invited by cult member Andy, she's watching the ritual from the trees. And so we're like, okay, I, I'm supposed to be this person. I'm this town person. Yeah, and I'm supposed to identify with this person. I'm seeing things through her perspective. Right, and she's watching this ritual from the trees and she sees them taking this LSD and sacrificing the chicken and – she gets noticed by cult member Molly, who just kind of like sidles up to her. I really kind of laughed at No matter words. It's, it's a very dump truck-like motion. It's like an odd, like, shuffle. Um, <laughs> and I don't know why, maybe because that particular character is supposed to be, like, heavily pregnant. But yeah, yeah it's, it's a very odd moment, but she does, you know, catch her, and that draws the attention of the male cultists. Right. And Sylvia, she flees to the sound of a, a sweet score done by Clay Pitts. Um, I really like the score throughout this whole movie. He kind of leans on the theremin a lot, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, uh, there's a few scenes where it's like, okay, we get it. You love this theremin. Like, you got it for free. <laughs> you need to make use out of it now. Also, the, the main chase theme kind of sounds like something out of, like, a rejected episode of Scooby-Doo, which makes me love it all the more. Hell yeah, I love Scooby-Doo. So. Yeah. <laughs> Damn you meddling cultists. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so she does run away, but she is caught and assaulted by a pair of the cultists. And this Um, is implied in the dialogue. It says she's badly beaten. But when you see her stumbling home, like her dress is torn, she's kind of battered and bloody. So I think the implication is that there is a sexual assault, but it's never 
explicitly stated as such. Yeah, she she does kind of like she's she wanders out from the woods the next morning and like she's very clearly traumatized. Yeah, and I'm just yeah. going to point out here that yes, this is a 1970 drive-in movie, but that's very lazy plotting. You know, like we'll just yeah. throw a sexual assault in there and that'll get things moving along. But you know, we can also say that about Game of Thrones. So. Uh, <laughs> and, in fact, I will say that about Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, so she wanders out from the woods uh, the next morning, and she's found by her younger brother Pete and Mildred, who runs the local bakery. And I'm just gonna pause uh, right here. Um, Pete was played by an actor named Riley Mills. And if you've ever watched exploitation films, or you know what, anime fans will probably also identify with this. There's always one character that's supposed to be like the moral center of the story, and they're <laughs> such a sanctimonious little shit that you can't stand them. In this film, that character is Pete. But he's also kind of the bad guy, too. Couldn't stand him. And <laughs> Boshkar was like, I'm just like my character. I am Horace Bones. You better stay away from me, because he couldn't stand this little character. <laughs> <laughs> So he basically terrified him into like, know your lines and get out of my face. But yeah, his character is hey. not any more pleasant. Like we're supposed to like root for Pete. A lot of important plot developments happen because of Pete. But the entire time you just want to kind of like hit him in his little potato face. And it's terrible because <laughs> you're supposed really to does. empathize with this character and it's almost <laughs> impossible to do. Yeah, he he is annoying, but I feel like it's very kind of of the time where you're like, okay, this fucking kid, like, gotta just deal with <laughs> well, it while he's. Here. We'll get to it. There's one scene in particular that justifies his inclusion in the movie, and we'll get there. But other than that, like in terms of him being relatable as like the moral high ground, no, <laughs> no, definitely not. But he runs home to grab their grandfather, and meanwhile. The cult member's van has broken down, and it doesn't have a name explicitly said, but I've named it the Hellmobile. Oh, see, I always covered, just went satanic mystery machine. It's covered from uh, hood to tailpipe in graffiti, and frankly, it's pretty damn rad if you ask me. It's broken down, though, and they decide that they're going to hoof it, and you sort of get to see some of this like casual cruelty of the cult where they push the van into a ravine with one of their buddies still snoozing in it. Um, he does survive, but there it's very sort of... Like, oh, this is a prank. This uh, well, it, It's a very passive-aggressive prank. Because um, yeah. they subsequently have a conversation that that particular cultist... In the credits, it has his name listed as Shelly. Most of the characters pronounce it Sully. Choose your own adventure on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's a little bit over Horace and how things are going. And it definitely seems targeted at him because he's a doubter. That Horace right. kind of wants to terrify him to keep the others in mind. I like the way that they kind of are are bouncing back and forth, where we get like a little taste of of the cult, and then we kind of like pan away, and then we get a little taste of the cult, and we kind of go away, and that happens again. Where Mildred heads up to talk with her boyfriend Roger Davis, and, uh, and who we is never the leader. establish what relationship Mildred has to Doctor Banner, Pete, and Sylvia, the grandfather and the two children. But she's also stuck in this town that's almost abandoned. Mr. Davis is the head of the construction site and her boyfriend, and that's about all you learn. Yeah, and he's working on this dam, and she's because she works at the bakery, they're like, oh, we made you stay so that we had something to eat. Also, at one point, because she's referred to as Mrs. Nash, so I'm assuming she, was, she had an ex-husband or she was married, and she goes to talk about something with Mr. Davis, and he basically just like shushes her midline, which kind Ugh. of tells you all you need to know about yeah, Mr. Davis. Sure. Definitely. And 
She's convinced that one of the crew members is at fault for the assault of Sylvia. And she, and, once again, kind of is like, well, what do you want me to do about that? I'm missing a pneumatic right. drill. And, you know, I'm behind on my it's damn It's insane. Deadline. Well, you think one of my crew members did it? Well, we got to get this And the thing is, it's not it's like there's that. a whole lot of other suspects. There's like 15 people in this whole town. Yeah, if that. And the cult members arrive in town and they buy some pies from Mildred, who has now gone back to the bakery. And she explains, this is where we find out that most of the town is in fact deserted and awaiting demolition, tacitly telling them that they can just stay wherever the hell they want. Yeah, because the hotel has been boarded up. All of the buildings are basically abandoned. It gives them free reign. And they give her a lovely excuse about how they're a rock music group and they were on tour and they broke down and God bless you. Like they're the sweetest little <laughs> things. And it doesn't read. Boshkar's line reading through that whole sequence is actually kind of brilliant because while he's selling it as hard as he can, Molly the pregnant cultist is clearly just laughing at his bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I, I really love that scene. And because they basically get permission to stay wherever they want, they, they find a house to stay in that Pete claims is haunted and also full of rats, but that doesn't bother Horace in the slightest. And you really get a chance to see him bouncing between this like manic joy and aggression. And I think it just does such a great job of creating this character of Horace. Yeah. Where he goes, it's almost, brittle where he'll start out laughing at a joke and it's playful and then it gets hysterical yeah and everything kind of gets again it's it's a lot of great physical touches because he wasn't an act yeah as far as the rats these were apparently very expensive trained rats and there was a handler there were 50 of them like they came on command when she blew a whistle and when she saw in the script that there was like a rat hunt and a sequence where you know there's quote-unquote dead rats she actually threatened to sue David Durston if he touched any of her rats <laughs> because they would be so hard to replace. They actually, the rats that were in this movie have better credits than some of the actors in this movie because they were also in Willard and Ben. Hell yeah. I mean, we, we you and I have actually talked about how I really want to watch Willard. I have not yet at this point. Well, but... you've already seen one of the stars of Willard. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. Movie. You know, now, now I have something to draw me in. There you go. <laughs> And, okay, when they get to the part, like, the cultists don't have any food and they have, like, a rat barbecue, they actually bought dead rats from a lab that were white rats and spray-painted them brown like the trained rats. <laughs> so yeah. someone, some PA who didn't get paid nearly enough had to sit there <laughs> spray-painting dead rats for the sake of this film. Yeah, that's a, a hell of a job to get tasked with. But I, I do think that the rat hunt is a pretty interesting scene because not only do you get these great rat actors, but they... Um, <laughs> the the they... veritable top of the heap in rat acting... <laughs> The they also do the this really interesting cutting back and forth between uh, the cult and the rats to sort of draw a comparison between the two, um, sort of having the rats running around infesting this house and the cult infesting the town. Also, you kind of, of get root. to see the power struggles within the cult and mm. them jockeying for position because, you know, Horace dangles the carrot in front of them of whoever finds the most rats will be supreme ruler of Sados for one night. Right. Sados is the name of their cult, just because I didn't mention that earlier. I, so, I don't yeah, know so. if it's the name of their cult. I don't know if it's like the domain of Satan. It's another one of those things that this movie doesn't really ever make super clear. True. Very true. It, it, it could not be the name of the cult. I just assumed it was. But So Sylvia comes to and she tells Dr. Banner about what happened. Uh, Dr. Banner, who is in fact not the Incredible Hulk, but is a vet and, li and Sylvia's grandpa. <laughs> And uh, off he goes to confront the cult. And he's got a sawed-off shotgun, and he's like 85. And I, um, 
There was no way this was going to end well for him. No, definitely not. I think it's really funny. Literally, the kid, Pete, is like, there's like 15 of them. Yeah. He's like, I don't care. I have two bullets in this shotgun. Yeah, like, I watched a John Wayne movie before you were even born. (laughs) I don't give a shit. Like... (laughs) Um, also, just because I know it will greatly upset somebody out there, it, I know they're shells, not bullets. <laughs> so, um, shotgun but, shells. Because um, you know we need the utmost in realism in our you know fifty-year-old drive-in cinema. Exactly, and uh, the cult is in the middle of sort of. It seems like they're gonna sacrifice this member of the of the cult, the one who was in the van. This guy really can't catch a break. <laughs> well, it, um, well. Rollo is the winner of the rat hunt, and he decides right. to torture Shelley. It starts out as just torture. They're like, oh, he'll bleed out. And he's like, if he dies, he dies. Very yeah. uh, rocky And it was very clearly calculated, again, jockeying for position, because I think Rollo knows that that's what Horace was probably going to do. Yeah, I, I agree. And they're in the middle of this torture. Uh, when Gramps arrives, and he, he does get the drop on the cult, but does just, like, the most ineffectual threatening ever. And then he just stands there and, like, <laughs> talks about shooting them, and it's like the barrel of the gun is inches from Horace Bone's face, like, just pulling the it's, it's wild that he is just so ineffective. The cult breaks his glass. I mean, I say the cult. It's really Horace. He breaks the glasses. He takes the shotgun. Literally just, like, takes it out of his hand. Yeah, just pulls it out of his hand. (laughs) Punches him him in the gut. And then they force him to take LSD. Horace initially... the unnamed cultist. She is never given a name. She's played uh, by an actress named Iris uh, Iris Brooks, if I recall correctly. She's kind of the sexy Sadie of this Fomanson family. And she tells him about how cute he is for an old guy and drops a tab (laughs) of acid into his mouth. Horace initially wants to kill Banner, but Pete has followed and is outside and raising a fuss. And this Um, is probably the only useful thing that Pete does. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. And cult member Sue Lin says that they shouldn't kill Banner because Pete is there, and if they kill Banner, and then they're going to have to kill Pete, and if they kill Pete, then they're going to raise a stink. Yeah, um, and I mean, again, there's not that many suspects in this town, and they have right. no wheels to get out. Exactly, and so the cult, do, they do try and get Pete, but Pete kicks Horace in the balls. <laughs> and they have this hilarious, it, it's cut very oddly, this scene where, like, Pete is swinging a stick at Horace, and Horace is jumping back, and it's clearly not even shot on the same day. <laughs> Uh, they do manage to grab him, but the other members of the cult, because of this sort of uh, sort of Damocles of uh, if we kill him, it, then it's obviously us. Um, and also, I think that there is a little bit of a reluctance to kill a kid. Just, uh, well, yeah, at Molly least in some is the them. one that finally is just like, just let him go. Just right. let him go. Like she comes out of the house and is like, just let him go, Horace. Probably exactly. because she's about to have a kid. So maybe she's a little soft on the idea of killing a child. Right. And so to that end... Banner and Pete are both released. Pete manages to get him home. And I actually think that there's a this scene where Banner is hallucinating. I really, it genuinely was sad to me because he's hallucinating Pete's parents back from the grave. And he's like begging them not to take him away from him because uh, he'd done the best he could raising him. I'm like, man. Well, I poor, mean, the actor Doc that Banner. played Dr. Banner was actually a longtime working like uh, stage actor and a bit of a character actor. So, I mean, out of the group, he kind of is the only one qualified to give some of these <laughs> things a lot of feeling. Yeah. Which is promptly flushed down the toilet. When the film goes into a full, like, almost PSA about LSD and its effects. <laughs> it's very explicit, where they're like, 
that LS what? I oh, like you never heard of that? It makes you go crazy. <laughs> and, and this leads to the absolute best line in the film in just a few short minutes. So he so pizza he's enraged by this whole situation. Yes. Um and so he grabs the shotgun and he's on his way to get revenge. Um when he finds and kills a rabid dog and Oh wait, that's Let the second know. useful thing. He actually does manage to kill the rabbit dog. That's true. Yeah, that dog didn't need to be put down because he would have, I guess, gotten into the town at some point. But so Pete, you get two things. Yeah. <laughs> but he takes some of this dog's blood, and because they have all of this veterinary equipment at the house, yeah, he takes Dr. a Banner, syringe and he extracts the blood. And if you actually bought the first re-release of this film, it came with like a faux hypodermic. Which I thought was a fun little extra. That is fun. Yeah. And Sylvia sees him come back in the house and she's like, what were you doing with the shotgun? Which leads to the absolute best line of the film, in my opinion, where they're having a conversation about the rabid dog and someone has to call the county because the dog has to be put down. And Pete stamps his foot and shakes his little (laughs) TV sitcom chubby kid cheeks. And is like, I may not know about LS, whatever you call it, that makes you crazy, but I know about rabies. And if you don't laugh at that point, you don't have a soul and we can't be friends. Right. (laughs) I I think that at this point, you really are like... I'm either in on this movie or I'm out on this movie. Yeah, like, <laughs> at this point, either you're going to just run with this whole, like, rabid hippie zombies conceit, or you're like, what did I just spend 45 minutes <laughs> of my life on? But yeah, yeah, just the delivery of that line, it's now become a running joke amongst everyone who's ever been to my house, because it's it's ridiculous, because they grind the plot to a halt. Again, <laughs> to talk about the effects of rabies and LSD. Yeah, it really... So much of the plot is based on, like, just understanding what's going to happen to these people that they really do have to be like, okay, time for your time for your lesson, just in case you don't know what happens with these. Yeah, we're going to go full stop, like, educational industrial film right now. Yeah. You know, the teacher um, brought out the projector. Everyone, you know, <laughs> you don't have to do a worksheet today. We're going to talk about rabies. Oh, the dream. The dream. I only wish that we saw this in health class. <laughs> but... He takes this dog blood, and the next morning, he injects it into meat pies at the bakery, and he sells them to the cult members. And this scene is also very funny to me, because he is insanely suspicious. Like, even the cult is like, what the- we don't want meat pies Meanwhile, for Meanwhile, Mildred is just like, oh, we'll make a baker out of you yet. Like, she's <laughs> champion oblivious. Very much so. Uh, and so he-, he First of all, I don't know why this kid gets to determine the pricing, but he manages to put them on sale and say, oh, they're only a quarter each if you buy a dozen. So the cult does, in fact, take him up on this offer, and they buy these meat pies for breakfast. And the scene of them eating the contaminated pies, I think is it's so gross. It's so well done. There's a lot of close-ups. And you can and hear like lip smacking and things falling out of their faces because they're not using mm-hmm. utensils. Right. It's probably the legitimately the most disgusting thing in the whole film. <laughs> I would not debate that. It's, that's the point where you have to turn your headphones off because it's just like loud smacking and chewing. They start to feel lousy, though, and they suspect that the food was spoiled to get revenge for the previous night, which, oh, if only they knew. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least they clocked the fact that it was retali- like retaliation. So it's yeah. one for the cultists. It starts to get worse and worse, and the cultists begin to show signs of infection. And after a tarot reading comes up with the death card, I think it's uh And okay, Rollo. just because I know someone will complain about this, yes, I'm aware, the filmmakers are aware, that when you have the death card in a tarot reading, it doesn't represent literal death. 
Right. So, you know, no one needs to nitpick that. We're aware. But as far as Rollo is concerned, yeah. it does it's, indeed it's kind of represent literal death. She pulls the death card, and um, I think at that point she also pulls one of the swords. Yeah, the ten of swords. Yes, and if you count the stabs, um, <laughs> somebody at least tried to make those things match up. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's mentioned later. They definitely were doing that on purpose. But Rollo stabs Shelley, Sully, whatever his name is, ten times, and he runs out and he grabs an axe. And sort I, of fully- I just want to say, like when they kick in windows or doors in this movie when they pick up axes they're real windows they're real doors they're real axes because they couldn't afford right who's gonna pay to build a fake axe yeah Yeah. right (laughs) (laughs) so he's fully in the violent grip of this disease before he's turned away by the rest of the cult who defend themselves with like a gun and a sword but not before he chops the foot off the corpse, though, which I'm like, uh, take that, I guess. <laughs> well, here's the part where, like, the fact that he had muscle control and timing came in because the actor's leg was inside that table and there was a prop leg. But he only had about an inch and a half margin of error. Oh, my God. So he had to come down with that axe within a very small space. It's all about control. So, I mean, well played on that. No one died making this movie aside from the chicken. <laughs> R.I.P. to that chicken, though. Yeah, uh, rest chicken. Thank you for your service. One of the cultists panics, and he runs off, pursued by Rollo. And two of the other cult members, Molly and Carrie, also flee into the woods. And Andy, who's the one being chased by Rollo, is – no, not not Andy. Excuse me. It's – I don't think that she ever got a name either. It's one of the other women cult members. And Is it the one that wears the low-cut dress the entire time? Because she doesn't have a name. If you're talking right, about it Irish is her. Yeah, yes. yeah. And so she's the one being chased by Rollo, and she finds a group of the construction workers who were sent by Roger to investigate. And they start to go to the hotel to investigate what was going on, but she lures them over to the side of the hotel and has sex with them. With the most bizarre kind of, she's kind of doing like come hither jazz hands and kind of shaking <laughs> her cleavage. It, it's not, it's not very sexy. Um, by any measure. (laughs) But it worked on the construction workers. They've been, you know, isolated in this town for a long time. They also seemed pretty uh, grody dudes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll get to how grody they get in just a short bit. She pulls them over and then starts to show signs of infection herself. And the other two construction workers who were not being seduced by her... They enter the house that was occupied by the cultists, and they find and are killed by a foaming-at-the-mouth Horus when they enter the attic. And th- I, him, like, hanging from the from the top there, when you see, like, just the shadow of his leg, I was like, oh, like, it genuinely <laughs> yeah. got me. <laughs> it was like, like oh, oh is he really going to jump from there? And the answer is yes. It sure is. And he has this, uh, this noose, and he... Like hooks it over the guy's neck and swings down, and it's all very, very efficient and well done. And yeah, I, I it's think it actually looks great. the sort of thing that wouldn't be out of place in like a '60s adventure show, like yeah. say the 1966 Batman. It's a very cool effect, definitely. And in the meantime, Sylvia, Sylvia. I now that I've gotten it wrong once, I can't even remember. It's Sylvia, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, the one who continues to give Andy chances despite previous right. events, Sylvia, yes. Yeah, and so Sylvia has, she makes up with Andy here and she starts hiding him in the barn. And they have a but, conversation about, like, he didn't eat the meat pies and he's, you know, really sorry about that whole, you know, assault, possible rape thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was, she, she really kind of brushes it off pretty easily, well, which is shocking. Well, she's a teenager shocking. and she's also been stuck in a town with no teenagers for God knows how long, so. The two of them are discovered by Pete, who admits what he's done. This is when he starts talking about how uh, he didn't actually have any of the meat pies. But meanwhile, Dr. Banner has reported the potential rabies epidemic to the Red Cross or whatever it is. And he's joined by Dr. Oaks, the town doctor who's from eight miles away. And hey, that's Durston himself. Apparently because the actor he cast didn't show up and they didn't have money to bring someone else upstate. So he just did it himself. Hey, that's what I call making do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they were making something. Yeah, making doo-doo. But Molly and Carrie emerge from the woods behind a house where an older woman takes them in. And they're like, oh, we're so so hungry. Please, sir, I'd like some more. Yeah. I'm about (laughs) to have a baby. Look at me, the poor pregnant lady. And, right, and, and Carrie this, kind of grabs some food, and there's a very odd moment where it's like, oh, don't, Carrie, stop that. She doesn't know any better because she's mute. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do you with know, anything. You know, like mute people do. Yeah, you know, people <laughs> who can't talk don't know how to use forks. I don't know why that was included. And, and like, this kindly older woman, is she takes them in and she's giving them some ham, which, uh, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm with Carrie. If someone offers me ham, I grab an electric carving knife, and I'm cutting that lady's dang hand off. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's straight out of like a 1970 Montgomery Ward catalog. It's a very odd thing to have pop up in the film. Yeah. Particularly like, in the context of like a gore scene, like to have it be like the, this electric carving knife that someone's grandma probably had. <laughs> it it feels like probably the most expensive prop in the movie. Yeah. Someone <laughs> sent away to Sears Roebuck and paid their, you know, $39.95 plus postage. <laughs> Banner, Oaks, and Roger find the corpse of the cultist who had sex with the construction crew, and they stumble upon the crew themselves when one of them runs out with the mach- with a machete just foaming at the mouth. And ooh, despite ooh, that, means I think you saw a print that's missing a scene. Really? Yeah. Because oh no, what did I miss? Yeah. Um, the cultist initially she lures two of the guys around the side of the old hotel. They discover Shelley's body. And that explains how three of them get infected. But the other two are like, let's get the hell out of here when they see the corpse. And they take sexy cultist cleavage number four with them back to like their construction worker bunker. And this is one of the scenes that apparently was one of the most commonly cut. And what happens is she basically, it starts out consensually, like they're going to run a train on her. Like there's going to be like a group sex thing. And so she ends up sleeping with pretty much all of the remaining living construction workers But she starts manifesting symptoms of rabies, like mid-encounter. And so she runs away from them, foaming at the mouth. And the construction workers get super rapey. And they're like, I'm going to show her ass. And they take her into the shower. And they, like, dump the cold water on her head. And, of course, as we've all learned from the PSA, rabid (laughs) people are terrified of water. So she goes completely crazy. And, you know, there's this whole altercation between her and the construction workers, which is how they all become infected themselves. I'll be honest. I... Totally missed that. It, it wasn't was probably in cut right out of the print <laughs> you watched. It's the only yeah. one I think it's still in is again any of the grindhouse releasing 
issues of the movie have the full X-rated cut. Wow. Well, uh, there you go. I'm glad uh, this, this is, is this is why we bring in the expert. <laughs> um, and this is what I was talking about a little earlier when you see how disgusting these guys can get. Because it's not enough that she just had sex with all of them. The second she gets up and is obviously having some sort of panic attack, their first thought is to like restrain her and slap her until she lies back down. So yeah, these are not, not the most upstanding of people. And again, sexual assault to move the plotting along is really fucking lazy. But yeah, I, I can't say that I'm super upset that I missed that scene. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of like you know, if you see a print without it. However, it is confusing. Because then it's like, yeah. how did the rest of them? Honestly, I just thought that it was like they they didn't actually know what rabies was and they passed <laughs> it sexually. Fair enough. Fair enough. But um, rabies becomes an, an STD, essentially, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. Also, it isn't so much like fear of water as it is difficulty swallowing. But again, what do you want? It's a drive-in feature. It tried. Right. Like I said, they one of them like he pulls out this machete and he runs out after Banner, Oaks, and Rogers. And you know, despite the fact that he doesn't actually say anything, the way that he like runs out and then just like swings the machete around really struck me as very like garbage day. Yes. Like, <laughs> it gives me the same vibe. Yeah, which I was it just is like this absolutely is delightful. a mood if you, if you gift those two moments. Yeah, the same 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 sort of tone, and they. <laughs> Not only does this one guy come out, but the rest of the crew emerges, and somehow most of them have machetes. Yes, <laughs> where those machetes came from, um, there's going to be, um, I think it's shortly after this, one of them is randomly dragging a dead goat behind them. Nobody yeah. knows where the goat came what the from. Hell? <laughs> they just kind of know. randomly like grab whatever. It would be one thing if they all had machetes. I'd be like, okay, for some reason, it was well, just like, maybe they were like chopping like trees or branches out of their way while they were building this dam. Maybe they were killing right. like random beavers. I don't know. Right, but that's not even the case. Only yeah. some of them have it. Yeah. And, like, the other ones just have, like, a stick. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, what the hell is happening? Like, some of them have, like, sticks and rocks, and then some of them have machetes, and then one guy's randomly dragging a goat around. <laughs> like, yeah, it gets it gets, it gets very, like, we're out of money, just grab something. <laughs> and so this, this mob of construction guys chase this group until they reach this water-filled quarry. And uh, as and you said, Scooby-Doo type chase music kicks in right here as they have oh, like a yeah. splash fight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you said, this is not really the, like how the fear of water really works, but they literally are just like splashing. It's ankle like deep what you would do to them. like an annoying little cousin in like a municipal pool. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very silly and it's very fun. Um, and while they're dealing with that, they do manage to scare off this mob. And Horace is off still doing his thing. Foaming at the he mouth, carrying a sword. Hell yeah, <laughs> classic Horace. He finds a boa constrictor on display. And the sign well, I, is misspelled, and the owner sure comes is. out in a union suit. And I would also like to point out that his false teeth fell out midway through, and they were not supposed to. They just left that taken. I mean, I would too. But one thing, I again, there's sort of this like embodiment with Horace that happens where he like finds this bow constrictor and when he is killing the owner of the snake he like wraps around him and chokes him out and like I think that the way that they use animals as a comparison point for the cult on multiple occasions is something I think is really interesting in this movie. David Durston did have a lot of stage-born notions. That's a nice polite yeah. word. We'll call them notions. <laughs> <laughs> and that does tend to come through, like, even in his sexploitation films. He did another 
Grindhouse feature called Stigma, which I can't talk about in the context of this because it would drag on too long. But yeah, he was definitely trying to at least give a little bit of polish to this film. Yeah, I think that it does come through, uh, especially like you said, um, there are only a few actors who really, I think, could handle uh, emotional scenes in this movie. Um, And I think that the next scene is a genuinely emotional scene. Um, They encounter Molly, who is the, the pregnant cultist and she finds out that she has rabies and is so distraught at the fact that there's basically nothing that they can do for her that yeah, she, she begs um because andy and uh, is the one who eventually tells her you know and he, she begs him for help and he basically tells her like it's hopeless the tough titty i didn't eat those meat pies like he's <laughs> not really too terribly invested and she starts crying and she takes off. Apparently she's been wearing a blonde wig. Most of the film takes off her wig and she picks up a tent stake. And well, you don't see a whole lot of it. I think the implication is enough in this case. Yeah. She gets worked into such a state that she literally like, well, apparently she herself. was having like a huge amount of trouble crying. And the director was like, well, don't you have anything you're sad about? Like, didn't your parents ever disappoint you? And she's like, no, my family's great. And he's like, you know, did you ever have a bad breakup with a boyfriend? No, like, I, I, it's been pretty, pretty amicable. And he finally found something to get her to cry. And apparently once she started, she couldn't stop for like four hours. It comes across for sure, because she is going wild here. And she like takes this stake out of the ground and just impales herself in the stomach with it. And like, God, it's really kind of brutal. You know, it's not even just her. It's the kid as well. And yeah, because I, I mean, bad. at this like, point, she's like super pregnant. She was thinking that she might have the baby in this abandoned town. Like it's it's the loss of not only her life, but of another, you know, of the basically about to be born. Baby. Yeah. And uh, and I think that it is it is a very powerful scene in terms of actually being able to communicate some emotion in a otherwise relatively goofy and fun movie. But Andy helps Sylvia and Pete escape Rollo, who is traveling through the woods doing his Rollo thing. Um, and he comes out and they splash water at him too. Yeah. <laughs> so they manage to get away. They have like but, another game of like water polo slash chicken. <laughs> and they discover their grandfather pinned to the wall of their barn by a pitchfork, which is, uh, uh, I think it's a great gore shot because they cut to it like quickly a few times. And then right at the end, they're like, just kidding. Here's a big lingering shot. of Yeah. It. Like, just kidding. <laughs> Look at this. <laughs> we actually um, spent money and time on this one kids stare at it hell yeah don't hell just yeah. stare at it eat it <laughs> <laughs> so su lin all the cultists are off doing their own rabid things and so su lin is keeping mildred stuck in the bakery but roger comes by and he drops off a shotgun for her to hide in the cellar with su lin starts to, like pour gasoline out to try and burn mildred out but well it's uh, not Horace- even i don't think Necessarily, if it burns her out, that's great. But I think it's more Horace shows up and he rushes at Sulin with his sword yeah. and he says, Die. And Sulin, being kind of spiteful, takes the gasoline and lights a match. Right. Yeah. She she stops. She was already she already was holding it, but she's like, You don't get to kill me. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to kill me. And it's also <laughs> kind of a very specific reference to that 1963 Pulitzer Prize winning photo. Mm-hmm. 
of the right. monk emoliating himself to uh, protest the regime in Vietnam, which is, again, an oddly highbrow reference for this film. It's kind of a weird place to put it. But it's definitely, that would have been very topical and very familiar to audiences at that time. Right. And, I mean, it's definitely not a dummy with perfect posture here. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, because uh, I, I should probably have swerved into, um, the actress who plays Suin was Jadine Wong, who became like a landmark agent for Asian American representation and getting Asian American actors parts in film in the theater and died a grand dame of the New York stage at 90 some odd years old. So she went on to do much better wow. things than this. <laughs> Honestly, good for her. <laughs> I doubt she looked back fondly on this, but uh, that seems probable, but you know, like at least she went on to bigger and better things, but she does in fact kill herself rather than give Horace the pleasure. But Rollo shows up as well and Horace and Rollo start fighting, and- um, which gives this is the best, like, kind of physical scene in the whole film. Mm-hmm. Bashkar choreographed it himself. They worked on it for, like, several days. And it looks pretty good. It feels pretty dancey, too. Like, the, the fact that I didn't know that, that George was a ballet dancer, but, like, the fact that they both have a dance background, I think, definitely is communicated in this fight scene. Yes, and it, it's very action-reaction, push-pull, like, a very, mm-hmm. like, almost a very partnered way to kind of choreograph this fight scene they both get a moment to do like some jumps and more complicated turns again for the sort of film this is it looks pretty decent definitely and andy sylvia and pete are escaping out the back but rallo takes horace's own sword and speaking of things that look pretty good when he stabs him through the back and it like kind of just shoots right out of his mouth yeah i think that looks pretty great yeah it looks i mean it's absolutely anatomically impossible but it's super super fun <laughs> yeah i mean for sure who, who gives a shit about anatomically possible <laughs> yeah in this movie no one but yeah it's definitely it, it's like a fire hose just straight up into the air i believe that this was in like a lot of the promo materials for this film like that specific scene was in a lot of the promo because it is probably one of the most overtly bloody. Right. Seems like a bit of a spoiler to be like, by the way, we're going to send oh, you the fight scene Grindhouse where the main Cinema. guy dies. Don't ever watch a Grindhouse movie trailer if you haven't seen the movie because they will <laughs> gleefully front load that shit with every relevant section. Like it'll be 90 minutes of nothing and they will catch the three minutes where anything happens. So don't ever, if you happen to develop a taste for exploitation cinema after this, don't watch the trailer before you've seen the movie because they have no qualms about just spoilers, spoilers everywhere. Speaking of, I I gotta say, this movie is only 88 minutes, which for people who know me, I love a, a short movie that knows what it's doing and gets out. So... Shout out to I Drink Your Blood for being sub-90 minutes. The full cut is a little longer. It's like 93, but still, it's about an hour and a half either way. Yeah, it's it's hitting the mark. As far as I'm concerned, uh, that's that's prime amount of time to watch a movie. And they're all doing, like, they're having their fight. Andy, Sylvia, and Pete try to get Mildred to open up the barricade that's blocking them out of this bakery, but... She doesn't do it in time, and Andy is beheaded by one of the swarming, rabid construction workers. I, they really... This is another thing where they're like, okay, we spent the money yes, on this, like, cast this of Andy's head. prop, and you are going to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> because that guy is really swinging that head around. Yeah. And I mean, again, this is another scene with the whole herd of now rabid construction workers. And, you know, everybody's kind of just 
choose your own adventure, grab what you can. And so we yeah. get a lot of footage of, you know, swinging this head around and like kind of like menacing people with the severed head. Although I don't think a severed head would be heavy enough to bludgeon someone with. <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, this, this severed head gets more close ups than several of the build actors in the film. Very true. And Sylvia and Pete uh, retreat with Mildred to the basement. Thanks to Andy kind of i don't even want to say sacrificing himself but he takes the hit he takes the hit we'll say and uh i really wish it had been pete but he again (laughs) that's not how this movie's gonna work (laughs) (laughs) and so the townsfolk do manage to bake they break into the bakery and uh they do destroy it but one of them finds the group in the basement and Mildred manages to blow his dang head open which i think is another fun sort of shot although yeah and the fact that they kind of linger on the half face for a second to give you some time to actually spend with it is very cool. Also, big up to the one person in the movie who successfully shoots something at point-blank range. (laughs) Yeah, everyone else is pretty ineffectual with it as well, especially as we talked about old uh, Grampy Banner. Yeah, Grampy Um, Banner, you know, he somehow manages to lose... He brings a gun to a blunt object fight and still loses. (laughs) Loses badly. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> um, but they run out the back and they're going to try and escape in Mildred's car. But the rabid cultists and the townsfolk, whoever's left basically, converges on them and they flip the car. And just when things look lost, it's the end for this group. Oaks manages to arrive with the cops who just light up the infected group. Yeah. And I mean, this is clearly all just stock footage because we just see a bunch of different guns being loaded with ammunition. Yeah. <laughs> and we get some Foley effects. Like, we don't really see the aftermath at all. Yeah. And they're like, hey, there's people in there, maybe. <laughs> And they don't think about this until after, you know, they've basically (laughs) unloaded several counties worth of ammunition into the car. Yeah, so sounds about right. Uh, Pretty realistic. (laughs) Yeah, actually, that sounds about correct. Never mind. (laughs) Mildred, Sylvia, and Pete managed to emerge from the car shaken, but otherwise unharmed. The version that I watched did have two additional scenes that were typically cut from the film, and then they were lost for a while, but thankfully found years later to be added to some of the Blu-rays. The first is directly after that, when Pete and Sylvia are being taken to the hospital. Mildred is revealed to have to be rabid, presumably from a bite that she receives while getting into the car. Yeah, because um, she's kind of the person holding them off. Right, and uh, she kills Roger, her boyfriend, when he comes to visit her in the bed. And I think that's very satisfying because yes, Roger is a piece Roger's of shit. Roger's an asshole. Like, <laughs> he's not quite Billy Loomis bad, but he definitely is one of horror's shittiest boyfriends. For sure, for sure. And uh, the second scene that's typically cut, but was in this version that I watched, is a closing sequence where Pete... Tries to turn himself in and, for causing this. And it's played for like swat, slide whistle, like calliope kind of comedy. And, yeah, and he's literally point, laughed off by the, the cops. The film had a lot more like slapstick in it. And the distributor was like, no, can, no, cut that, please. Right. Take this scene, please. And he could get his way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the cops laugh him off. They say, what, did you break a window, Sonny? And uh, he's like, well, fine, I won't tell you. And it just leads to a shot of Pete walking in a field with a toy gun as the closing credits play over it. And boy, howdy, that was a lot of fun. (laughs) I mean, the ending we got, the actual theatrical ending, I guess, is just the doctor going, well, at least those poor bastards are out of their misery because death by hydrophobia is awful. You know, (laughs) cut to theremin, roll credits. 
So again, right, and again, it's the fact that it's the director, it makes that even funnier to me. Yeah, <laughs> like, he couldn't even write himself like some sort of line that would have provided some closure. It's just like, oh, here you go, kids. Thank you. <laughs> and so uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a great ending, and we've reached now the point where we sum up why this is not just a great fun movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And so I'll I'll let you kick us off. All right, I Drink Your Blood, David E. Durston's I Drink Your Blood, is the best horror movie ever made simply because of how many different purposes it can serve. You want to have an MST3K moment with your friends? It's a movie about rabbit hippie zombies. You have a friend that's an edgelord and only watches the most brutal of horror. It's one of the first movies ever cut to an X for violence. If you don't understand, like, what is grindhouse cinema? What is exploitation cinema? Why do people care about that? This is kind of a good, zippily-paced bloody bad taste but not not safe for life cannibal holocaust experience i drink your blood is pretty accessible if you kind of want to get a sense of grindhouse sleeps if you just want to watch a vintage horror film it is pretty effective the story is engaging the characters are a little thin but things keep happening and the plot does move along according to a logic might not be the most (laughs) intellectual logic but it definitely knows where it's going and how it's going to get there And have I mentioned that it's a film about rabid hippie zombies? You'll never see that again. That's something that could have only happened at the height of the Grindhouse era. And that is what makes I Drink Your Blood my favorite Grindhouse movie and the best horror movie ever made. Yeah, I think that you've really hit on it where this movie is the perfect entryway, I think, for so many people. The gateway drug. Yeah, as someone who loves a lot of these exploitation movies and has a real a real fondness for a lot of these movies that are bad but or not even bad but just like they're schlocky because they are making do with what they had and a lot of times what they had was not a lot of budget but a lot of heart and I, I think that this manages to do that. It, it, it's a, a great, fun movie. There's some stuff in it where you can laugh at it, but there are parts that do elevate it. Like I said, there are several scenes here that genuinely I thought were emotional. The fact that you do have two people with a dance background does help to create some of that action that feels really good when you're watching it. It's rabid zombie hippies. I mean, what what do you want, people? <laughs> I mean, it's got something for everyone. If, if this movie doesn't have it, you don't want it. Right. I think that it really is. It's a it's a great way to sort of dip your toe into exploitation film. And if you can find it, watch it. We, I think it's really a, a great place to start. So that's why it's the best horror movie ever made. Gigi, this was so much fun. I want to thank you so much for coming on. And of thank course, thank you so much uh, for having me and let me sit here and talk about this cheap Manson family knockoff. Uh, no, hey, for real, I'm glad I finally got a chance to watch it. And so, why don't you tell the people where they can listen to you talk about all other kinds of exploitation movies and stuff? Okay, I'm kind of everywhere, but you can always find me. I am the Midnight Movie Monster at MidnightMovieMonster.com. I can be found on Twitter at Ms. That's M as in Mary, S as in Sam, Midnight Movie. I write for a ton of horror genre sites around the web. Wicked Horror TV, Horror Hot House, Daily Grindhouse, Horror Fam. If it has horror in the name or covers crappy exploitation movies, I've probably written for it at least once. Want to come <laughs> tell me my taste is questionable? It is. So come say hi. Stop by MidnightMovieMonster.com. 
and let's watch some shitty movies together because I've seen some shit and now you will too. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, like I said, she's one of my absolute favorite writers working right now. So definitely go and check out her work. As far as my plugs, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Gerg Hef. You can find the show on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. Um, you can check out LittleHorrorPHL.com if you want to basically have a place to find all of the stuff it has links to uh, all the social places the store if you want to buy some merch you can even find the rss feed and uh, episodes right on there and all kinds of great stuff um, including show notes now which is a new thing so check that out and leave us a rating and a review on itunes if you would be so kind because it really helps and um, that's pretty much it oh and thanks to the morbidly beautiful podcast network for their support and that's pretty much it so thanks again Gigi. remember kids satan was an acid head just from his cock <laughs> <laughs> all right everyone bye bye Hey, George here with a little bonus plug. We got some fun pins with Zombie Ben Franklin on them that are not going to be for sale, but are going to be for giveawaying. Uh, the next chance for people to get their hands on some will be when we hit 50 reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you want your chance, make sure you've done that. Tell your friends about the show and make sure they do that. And we'll be there shortly. Thanks. Bye for real now.